HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. It's our 14th season on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. So this is Monday, May 29th, 2023. It's the weekend of Rib King NYC, one of my festivals. And a big part of that were two of our favorite drinks that are being made in Industry City. One was Fort Hamilton's distilleries, their rye whiskey, and of course, Gun Hill Public. Uh, they brought over a really nice light lager that they actually brew in their little microbrewery here at Gun Hill Public, and that was a big hit at uh, Rib King also. So we're going to talk with uh, two beer experts, start off talking about beer and food pairing and some of the, the special things that they do as higher-level Cicerones, and we'll also talk about judging beer and uh, a lot of cool things that happen when you're really interested in beer as a career. So let's go around the room and you guys introduce yourselves. Hey, Jimmy, it's James Ty here, uh, Gun Hill Public House and Beer Acolyte. Shane McMurray, uh, Global Director for Beer Passion and Beyond Beer Innovation at Anheuser-Busch InBev. And what's your qualification? Uh, hey, I'm a Master Cicerone. And James? Uh, Van Cicerone, National BJCP Beer Judge. All right, so the, the, my friend James Ty, is, we've known each other a very long time, has been on quite a few times on the show and usually is my go-to for beer experts and, and talking about things like Cicerone programs. So, James, it's great to have you back. Um, just give us an overview of the, some of the, the things that you guys wanted to talk about today and, and why you brought Shane in. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. It's always great being here. Uh, I, you know, today being Memorial Day uh, and we just celebrated Rib King, we thought it'd be a nice uh, entree to talk a little bit about you know, not just barbecue, ribs, but food in general and, and how that goes with beer. Uh, you know, my buddy Shane over here, we, we were just having beers for the weekend. So we were talking about some of our exploits uh, recently. We, we've shared some experiences internationally and domestically as well. Uh, so we may talk a little bit about beer judging and, you know, how that differs, you know, from different countries and cultures and regions. Great. And give us a quick backstory on where we are. Gun Hill Public and Industry City, it's a brewery, but it's affiliated with Gun Hill Brewing, and you're a part of it. Right. So for those that don't know, Industry City is, uh, I guess you call it a multimodal complex in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Uh, the brief history of it is that the developers uh, were very successful in putting together the Chelsea Market, and they decided they wanted to do something a little bit bigger and more ambitious here in Brooklyn, um, and that was the genesis for Industry City. Uh, where we fit in as Gun Hill is we have our uh, little annex, uh, which is a taproom brewery on the second floor of Building 6, which is known as the Brewers and Distillers Row. Uh, it's a nice little collection of different purveyors, producers of, uh, you know, alcoholic beverages and spirits. That's a great place. And Shane, give us your backstory because, uh, you know, to go from 
working in the industry to master Cicerone, it's, it's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it's certainly been a journey. So I'm Australian, originally moved over from Brisbane, Australia to London 10 years ago, uh, where I joined the industry at a small craft brewery. And then after several years there, I worked at the Institute of Brewing Distilling as a senior technical officer there for a few years. And then I decided I want to get back into industry. Uh, and about a year after that, I joined uh, ZX Ventures, uh, part of the business at AB. Uh, and then since then, it's kind of snowballed. I finished my master's in brewing science. And then in 2021, uh, I was lucky enough to, to pass a master's Cicerone exam as well. And so I have a, a very privileged position at the company now where I look after beer education and engagement for the company. Um, but I also have a, a very fun technical role in a very exciting part of the business, which is beyond beer. So that's seltzers, uh, wine, spirits, cocktails. So it keeps my beer brain working on the fun side of education and engagement. But then I also get to look at, okay, what are we doing in some parts of the world in terms of a seltzer? What juices do people like? What flavors? And how do we build a really nice beverage around that? So something completely different from my skill set. But uh, I'm excited to get into some of the food pairings and stuff. It's always... When you start talking about beer and food, you're deconstructing how you're tasting. And so we do a lot of that in other beverages as well. Beer is a, a brewed beverage. And then beyond beer space, it's a constructed beverage, right? You're infusing a lot of flavors. So the approach and the mindset's quite different. So I always like picking James's brain. And I think half of the best conversations we have are, are at the bar here, um, just, just shooting the shit really and talking about what are you getting and what do you think of something. So that's a great intro. Let, let's pick a couple of topics. First, just how you, when you're judging a beer or a beer and food pairing, I saw that you mentioned there's people get the word smoked and roasted confused or they overuse them. Let, let's talk about that and you guys have a conversation about it. Yeah. Um, so this, I think, the, I'll, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest and say I was one of those that really conflated the two. Um, I thought they worked hand in hand, which is not always the case. And so um, I guess, where, where should we start with that? I think maybe like if we want to get maybe scientific, the aromatic compounds are a little bit different. Um, roast is very much uh, Maillard reactions, late state Maillard reactions. So you're going to get, uh, I mean, if you want to again get technical, you get a lot of like pyrazines and pyrroles and they're producing that kind of ashy, smoky, charcoal, uh, burnt kind of flavors and uh, smoke is a little bit different because you're actually uh, coaxing out some of the the actual character of the wood itself. And so while you might get some Maillard reactions that are coming from smoke, it's typically like a different set of um, of compounds that are most, mostly phenolic. You know, you talk about guaiacols, and so they're going to produce like a little bit more of that smoke uh, smoked fish, campfire. Uh, maybe um, what else would we talk about with there? Like a little bit of vanilla too. Like that's a, that's a guaiacol as well. So, yeah, I, I think the the separation in my mind is always they're two totally different sources. So if you're using it as a brewing ingredient, and you're thinking of your roasted malts, that being black patent malt or um, roasted barley. It is, as James said, it's those Maillard reactions, which is typically, you know, coffee, chocolate undertones there. And then if you, if depending on the on the malter, of course, is, is up to the aptitude of how they create that. And so you can get, of course, if, if they roast at too high temperature and they don't sequester quick enough, you can get some burnt notes, which borders on ashy, which starts getting you into that smoky notes. But to make smoked malt, um, one of the most famous examples probably over from Weyman in Germany, which is based in Bamberg for their Rauschbier stalls. Totally different source. You are literally smoking the malt uh, with an offset smoker there. And people are pretty good at typically picking actually all these flavors out because people know what campfire smells like. People know what smoked fish smells like. People know what coffee smells like and, and, um, and roasted uh, kind of notes there and toasted burnt toast. So it's not as if people actually can't describe it, but... Uh, depending on, on the, the brewer's use of the amount of those ingredients, they can, and sometimes you use them together, right? But um, for me, it's always separating out the source from it. Um, but they're a fantastic ingredient, but easily overdone. May I ask, um, as we talk about the vocabulary of, of these descriptions, I feel like that in the last 10 years, the awareness and also the, the, the terms themselves have come a long way. I remember that at one point, people only used wine terminology, which is from farms in France, and then people tried to come up with things like sharp and bitter, but, but, but you just kind of nailed it talking about campfire and smoked fish. Can you guys talk about in your training and also in the industry just how the, these, the vocabulary has evolved? 
Um, I, I think that's a really strong point, and it's one of the strengths of the industry, right? Um, the beer industry is incredibly good at identifying key compounds, their sources, how a brewer can influence them. And that makes a lot of sense when you think of how we make our beverage, right? Winemakers work with the elements, it's more agricultural, they come up with it, they do a little bit of tweaks on the fermentations, work with some vials. A brewer can influence the, the entire spectrum of flavors. We have a lot more to work with. And actually probably through things like the Cicerone program, which is uh, outward looking, but also you think of the original beer flavor wheel, my garden, the 70s, they've been doing it for 50 years. So as an industry, I would say we're much better um, at defining it and talking about it and understanding it in and of ourselves to compare not only to the wine industry, but the spirits industry, uh, and in particular the cider industry, I think we're about three steps ahead of them. So it's um, it's it's a power, power for us when we're talking to ourselves that James and I can talk about the particular combo, compounds, um, but then we need to convert it to consumers as well. It's no point me talking about you know, guayacol and usual means nothing. But if I say it's smoke fish and campfire, easily relatable. And that's where the strength comes in from, from our industry, I think. Yeah, and, and I want to kind of come at it from the other side, you know, the mainstream perspective. And I think collectively, we've all evolved. We've all become really better and much more educated about what we're eating. Um, you see that everywhere that we go. You see that with what people post, you know, on their Instagram sites and social media. Um, I think... We just we have a better understanding of you know the food that we're taking in. We're much more selective about that. So that allows for us, you know, as professionals, to to be even more uh, more specific and, and drill down even even bigger. So like I can start talking not just about clothes, but like you know where those clothes come from. Are they from Penang? You know, are you talking about like cinnamon? Is it is it like Indonesian cinnamon? Is it Vietnamese cinnamon? You know, and so that's that's the power of being able to kind of talk about those things because people understand it from that perspective as well. And I went with Roasted and Smoke, not just because we just did a barbecue event called Rib King, but because our friend John Hall is, is, is always talking about uh, Rauk beers, and he's got a thriving Facebook page that I read every day. Um, specifics, Smoke versus Roasted, give me, each of you give me a, a beer example. Brand is okay. It can be something that you don't sell. Yeah, Roasted, you know, I, I think about just an imperial stout. You know, you're going to get a lot of huge roasted notes with so really big and very in your face. And so it's very easily detectable. Off the top of my head, you know, I think about maybe uh, Sierra Nevada Narwhal. You know, there's a little bit of vanilla in there as well, but predominantly very, very roast heavy. And smoked? Smoked. I mean, Shane just mentioned, you know, obviously the the very paradigmatic Rauk beers, you know, from Bamberg. But uh, the Americans have done that as well, and they kind of put their own take on it. Um, I'd say probably Alaskan Smoked Porter was probably one of the first smoked beers that I had that I really appreciated. It was well integrated. You know, you really were able to pick up just the, the character and the essence of uh, the Elder Ward smoke that was, and it really just integrated well with the Porter base. That's a great example of both, right? It's a dark beer and you get the smoke and the roast notes in it. So if you want to really try the spectrum, you know, as James said, you could try an imperial stout or even a stout. I think you're more looking for a stout than a porter and, and you can agree or disagree, but I would say um, you're using roasted barley in a stout versus black malt and roasted barley gives you those roast notes, whereas black malt generally gives you more chocolate undertones, which if you kind of want to split them up, that's how I split porters and stouts in my head. Port is a little bit more chocolate-led with roast undertones. A stout is roast with chocolate behind it. So um, a, a good clean example of an imperial, I'd say Sam Smith's imperial stout is quite good, 7.5%. And then going the other way, as James said, I'll, I'll double down on, on Schlenkera. Um, all of their beers are, are generally smoke-led. So you have the Hellers, you have the Mertz, and you have the Weizenbach. Um, if you really want to know what smoke is, any of those beers from that brewery, with the exception of the Hellers, is probably a little bit light. Um, but I think if you go those ends and then have James's one in the middle, you're really going to see the, the impact of the flavors there. Yeah, and, and I think Shane just brought up something which I wanted to highlight too. You know, if you want to really talk about roast and actually roasted barley, an example everybody knows is Guinness. And so when you taste that Irish stout, you know, whether it's nitrogenated or in a bottle, you really get a different kind of roast character to it, you know, because of the, the production of the raw materials. And to me, it's a little bit more ashy. It's a little bit more dry. You get some chalky notes to it, which you don't really get, you know, from, from other malts uh, that, that are kind of close in, in character. Wow. And when you mentioned smoked porter, I, I remember you know, going back 12, 14 years for American beers, there were a few smoked porters that I remember. I can't remember the names, but that's neat. Why do you think that that was something American that 
that first used the the, the smoky f component help me with my language but in in a successful way because the smoke porters did stand out you didn't really have like real rowky american beers back then i think when you're talking about what the americans did with smoke I, I, one of the things that was to their benefit you know when you think about the american style of brewing you know and specifically the yeast strains that were being used it's a very clean uh very angular example so to be able to kind of layer on top of the smoke and, and find that integration it was really easy to to kind of pick out um, even even as well integrated as it was, uh, but it really kind of gave it gave the smoke uh, pretty much like a, a nice stage to kind of stand on because the uh, the actual base beer could could take a step back and allow for the smoke to kind of highlight itself. I, I guess it's, I'm not American, but I have a, I have a question to pose, and I think this is my step back interpretation of it is when those uh, smoked waters and smoked beers were coming out in the US was kind of late 90s to, to mid noughties, right? And that was a little bit of more is more. That's when you have the IBU race and stuff like mm. that. And so when you're looking at the beers and the flavor intensity that's coming out of the US at the time, there really was a doubling down of, an, of flavor intensity. And if you're gonna do a malt lead beer, why not put a smoke aspect and accent to the beer as well? What, what do you guys think? Is that a fair assessment of stepping back? It was a beer of the time or a flavor palette or a reaction to something? I mean, I would say that it just was, it was an easy add-on. If you're making a porter, maybe, maybe people weren't sold on porter, but, you know, smoked porter sounds really good, especially 15 years ago, 20 years ago, just like an imperial stout was probably an easier sell, um, especially then you weren't competing with a Guinness. So I think, I think then, right, people in craft beer were trying to step up, do, be a step above, you know, mass-produced beers. Yeah, and, and I think the point to make, too, is that we don't really realize how nascent the, the American brewing tradition is, specifically in the craft beer milieu, if you will. Um, and so we're talking about in the 90s, the, the industry was pr pretty much like only about 20 plus years old at the time. And so I think it was trying to step out of the shadows of, of the British tradition in, in many ways, even though it was inspired by a lot of British styles, uh, the beers at the time, I should say. Um, and so what was really unique, and I think it, it was really... It was invigorating for the industry was that the Americans were trying to put their own spin and, and create their own character on on their brewing tradition. Uh, and I think that's kind of like a lost opportunity nowadays. You know, when I go, I mean, this is a different conversation, but when we go to other parts of the world and there's a lot of stuff that's being made, which is fantastic, but it feels like it's almost mirroring back, you know, the American sensibilities. And I'd like to see more of of you know, kind of place and geography, you know, when I'm, when I'm tasting a beer. And that was something the Americans were really successful at doing. It was really artful, if, if you're asking me. Well, one, one reason we're talking about this is that we've known for a while that the higher level Cicerones, whether you're even certified or advanced and, and master, one of the many skill sets they, they learn is talking about food and beer pairings and putting them together. So we were talking about roasted and smoked in beer, Let's come up with, this is, I don't know if you have this on your test still, but a pairing off the top of your head. Wow. A roasted beer, what would you pair with it? A smoked beer, what would you pair with it? Who wants to go first? Oh, I, I think... Um, you always have to go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and off the top of my head, smoked beer, I really like... Um, we had a, like a white halibut and a really light smoked hellers because you're kind of bringing that smoky element back into the beer and the intensities, the not not too dissimilar as well and that's it's interesting it's an interesting space taking one step back and always like understanding how other people approach this is um are you an incredibly mechanical person in how you do beer and food pairings do you do um like the ccc's cut complement and contrast coordinate do you do an abc like an, an abridge um accompaniment abridge and then contrast it's like how are you a mechanical person say okay i look at the intensity then i look at the flavors then i look for matchings then I look for contrasting it's because what you don't want to do in this space is make what is an art into a science because it doesn't resonate with consumer really as well i've got this 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 it's about the storytelling and it's a bit of a gut feeling and it's in terms of the, ex the exam and the program itself, it's definitely the hardest one because you can't really study for it. It's your... So what's your examples? Come on now. <laughs> well, also, like, even last night I was at a, 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 a Thai restaurant and he was telling us about some of the herbs and spices and then my, my colleague said, well, it's related to ginger. So it, it, that also set my expectations as well. 
Yeah, and and I'll give an example. So I was, I was working, we had a brewmaster course internally in St. Louis for all the North American team. And I came in uh, for a couple of days to teach them about beer styles, um, beer and food pairings, et cetera, which is just as an aside, is a really interesting experience for a brewmaster. So AB brewmasters are about being the best you can be and making it better. It's like, whatever you think you can do, you can do it better. And so they they taste, you know, we have 11 uh, tasting touch points in making Budweiser and it's very process driven. So to put a beer in front of these guys and girls as well, um, they they kind of freak out a bit because you put, you put I, I put a stout in front of them and say, talk to me about the beer and what do you think about it? And they're like, well, what should I think? And so do you have learning how to deconstruct your taste and what you're getting is, is really, really important. And I did the... I, I, talking about Thai food, um, we did a Thai red curry with Space Dust, which is a, effectively a double IPA, um, quite resonant and strong. And that's that's a really risky maneuver, right? Because you have spice and a lot of IBUs. Um, and the, the chef uh, we did it with, did a, it, it took him three goes, and it, we're talking about when we're going through it. And first, like, standard Thai red curry, but what we what we did is we kind of built layers within it. So you have more body, you build more leek, you build a bit more cream in it. So the body of the dish still has the spice, but when you start pairing it with a, a beer that has a quite amount of dextrin, so it's a good amount of body, but a high amount of IBUs, they, they really meld together. So the body of the beer and the body of the dish allowed the spice and the, the higher IBUs and the bitterness in the beer to match because I'll be honest, straight up strong spice and strong bitterness is not a nice combination. But when you work it together and intentionally build it, that worked amazing was the favorite dish. James, do you, do you work from a, a scientific chart? I do not. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Uh, I come from a different approach. I, I, I see beer as being just another ingredient you know, in many ways. Uh, it's a very complex ingredient, you know, and offers a lot uh, in, the, in the toolkit. I think Shane's being a little bit too humble because we did have a conversation about Imperial Stouts and we, and we were talking specifically about pairing uh, with Imperial Stouts. And what I took, you know, with our conversation, you know, I thought a really good, um, a really good pairing. And this also involves cooking with food. So that's, that's another component that, you know, that we add to the table. And Shane brought up the idea of caramelizing onions, you know, using imperial stouts. I'm like, wouldn't that be great? We do. We caramelize these onions. You put and you you. you know, and this was also inspired uh, very much by oh gosh, what the the um, oh, what's the uh, forgive me now the uh, April Bloomfield's gastropub in the West Village. What was that? The spotted spotted pig. Spotted pig. It was spotted pig. So very much inspired by that hamburger. So we're talking about caramelized onions uh, using uh, imperial stout. You know, in order to kind of just cook that down for an hour plus, put that on top of a hamburger patty, um, a little bit of uh, Stilton blue cheese. And so you got this really, really rich um, dish and, and that, that stout comes in, it just kind of cuts everything, adds a little bit more complexity, makes it a little bit more dynamic, uh, brings those chocolatey roasty notes to it. And I think that's a really good pairing if you're asking me. And then you drink it with the stout. Okay, you drink it with the stout, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Just said, uh, uh, cooking friends, uh, Caramelizing onions just the other day at the Rip King NYC, our former Jimmy's number 43 chef. David Navarro was there caramelizing onions, finishing it with a beer, and he made it into a grilled cheese. There you go. Yeah. So would that still be a that could you pair that with the beer you cooked with? Is, is that something? I used to cook with red wine. I would serve it with the same wine. Is, is that something that can apply to beer? I think I think it what's interesting, just picking up on the last point of that is um you need to think of what beer you're using, right? Because we're, we're suggesting, the suggestion for the Imperial Stout is it's high in residual sugars. So if you go and put your uh, general light lager and, and, and try and do the same thing, it's not gonna work, right? So it's not adding beer to it, it's adding a beer and thoughtful process, one with the flavor combination, because you're gonna get caramelization along with the Maillard reactions from the beer, plus the sugar, so you're getting more caramelization. That, that's, I think, the secret sauce to that pairing, which is, it, it always brought me on to a gripe in the UK of, um, with uh, pies, with um, ale in it, right? So you add in the recipe and, and, and the, the, the success of the pubs was it is because it was old cast beer, which is slightly turned to vinegar, right? And so if you're doing a fresh, any old pint could be a golden hour or summer hour and you start making it into this ale pie, it's not gonna work. What you need is one that's slightly turned because the vinegar is gonna start breaking down some of the proteins in the, in the meat and soften it up for you. So it's, it's that next kind of layer of knowledge and it's easy to, it's a difficult dichotomy because you wanna give the consumer the takeaway of um, 
beer and alpine. Let's just stick a beer on the same as a caramelized onion. Oh, if you put a beer on it, it's going to caramelize nicely, but it doesn't really quite work like that. So it's, it's how do you communicate getting, yes, that's a good combination, but you actually need to think about what you're doing. That's what makes the best combination. That's a great cooking tip. Yeah, and, and because of that, you see a lot of these recipes that are out there. And it's like, oh, just add a bottle of beer. Typically, it's just an international pale lager. Perhaps it's a dark lager. Um, and I think that's part of where, I, I guess, the, the beer professional, so to speak, you know, we can talk about the nuances between styles and what application might work better in a specific recipe, which is, I think, what Shane's kind of getting to. And then another pairing maybe with a smoked beer or and would you smoke like have barbecue with smoked beer I, I feel like that's a little too um i i actually like barbecue with cider more than with beer I, I yeah i think that that goes into the more is more and it depends don't get me wrong as mentioned if you i really like smoked wings right and sometimes if you're there covered in sauce or they're not that heavily smoked you actually want more and so you, you now have a tool in your toolkit that being the beer to bring smoke back to it um, because what you're going to get if you have a heavily smoked um, dish is that is definitely going to go into the beer and affect your palate. So you can, if, if you're not enjoying it or you think it could be more, don't get me wrong, and use it with the sauces as well. Sometimes you have a smoked sauce on to kind of bump it up. But I, I, always, I really like smoked wings, and that's been a frustration, but I find actually a, a Mertzen, smoked Mertzen, really works well with that. Back to German beers in Belgium. So let's, let's look at the culture. You mentioned the, the old cask ale that might be turning and, and why that makes the the ale pie that gives it a special quality for me i always thought of certain german styles of beer and then oh, i'm sure there's also for belgium that were just meant to go with food and i always like to start with that i don't think we talk enough about just these natural pairings so i don't know in my early years in the career food writer comes in with friends to my old pub and says hey what do you want to pair with this? We had wild Alaskan salmon. And I said, well, my go-to usually for any pairing is a German Hefeweizen. And I feel like the, the, the cooks, the way I do it, like whether it's grilled or in a skillet, you know, the, a simple like fatty salmon, but it's wild, simple, simple vegetables with it. For me, that, that's just a natural pairing. And you mentioned a smoked Meritzen. What is it about German? And we, don't, we can talk about Belgian beer separately. What is it about the, those classic styles that, that why they go so well with food? If you agree with me, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think you know any any specific beer. If you if you find a if you find an application, it goes very well. Um, I would say on balance, why German beers go really well is because you're talking, it, and we're talking about maybe like the Western, you know, uh, cuisine. Uh, just because, and, and we're going to get to is it's because when you when you're talking about like a lot of German beers, it's it's very malt forward, you know, so it kind of serves as a starch base to to a lot of pairings, and so, you know, with uh, when I think about like a typical like entree you know from the western culture whether it's french you know whether it's what it's british it could be german as well you know it's very protein laden and so you want that's why you always have that side of potatoes or you have that side of rice and beer kind of works really well in in that particular application as as, as that starch component and i think that's why we think about german beers you know with food it's it's i don't i want to say it's not complex uh but it, it's a relatively easy to grasp understanding of why that's that's a good pairing um, let's just talk about the beer we're drinking before we take a break. What is it, James? I know you poured for us. Right. So, uh, so you and Shane are drinking the uh, the Hellas, you know, that we make up here at the Gun Hill Public House. That's Gun Hill Public, made here on site in Industry City. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and so this is a this is our interpretation of a Munich style Hellas, uh, which is typically going to have, you know, uh, a lot of really fragrant, rich, uh, malt forward notes and you know uh, our good friend ryan daly who's also a master cicerone uh, and also with abm bev his his great description of a hellas is that it's almost like a french baguette you know and i thought that's really masterful and it really kind of speaks to what a hellas should should uh, come across as but what's the abv on this one i don't remember to be honest it's three and a half percent which i it's what i like about it is it's it's the low abv and it's a frustration of mine probably in the u.s in that there's not a big market that sits between three and a half, four and a half percent, right? Which is a majority of the UK and Australia. So a mid-strength beer in Oz is three and a half percent. Full strength is, is about 4.1, 4.2, which is a Bud Light level, right? Which is light American lager. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, it's, it's the sessionability of beers is quite difficult, I find, in the US. And, and this is the perfect kind of mishmash of actually the, the taste intensity is 
exactly on a hell is what I expect, but the ABV is three and a half percent. So you didn't lose anybody. It, these were incredibly difficult beers to make and a full flavor three and a half percent. So I, I really appreciate this one. And I, I agree with you. It, it, it's the difference in drinking culture that th this could be a lunch beer. Uh, higher ABV can't be, and that's another show. We're going to take a short break. We've been talking about beer and food pairings with a couple higher-level Cicerones here. We'll be back on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's our 14th year, Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's a nonprofit podcast network uh, with sometimes over 30 different shows from farming, cocktails, food, chefs, a lot of different stories. Um, great network. I'm very proud to be a part of it. You can become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate business members and individuals. Thank you so much. So we're talking with two higher level Cicerones. I say that because there, there is some gravity to it. You know, I don't know, there's, there's PhD of science, but I feel like that the advanced Cicerone, master Cicerones are definitely know their, their, their trade and their craft and a, a lot of things that the average person doesn't know. And I think the whole industry is better for it. So great job, guys. Congratulations on, on all the work you've put in with the Cicerone program. And um, we're moving on before we talk a lot about just the intro to, to beer and food and, and tasting and some flavor components. So um, one reason that we're here today at Gun Hill Public with James Ty is that uh, both he and Shane were recently at a international beer judging in Lyon, France. So why don't you guys talk about you guys as higher level Cicerones, you know, how many of these competitions are there? What role do you guys play? And um, how important are those competitions for the industry? I think I, I, I had a question before when I was actually at CBC in Nashville with, with a guy called Matt Kirkegaard, who's a, uh, a podcaster and writer and journalist in Australia. And he said, Shane, why, why do breweries enter beer competitions? And, and I can tell you for us internally, it's, it's three things. One is it's really good recognition for the brewer that makes it. That's number one. It's important and it's a nice... Uh, it's a nice feeling to achieve, um, to know that your beer is doing really well and other people recognize that. The second one is it's very helpful both internally and, and externally for others than that in terms of it could be a sell-in sheet um, to a wholesaler or as a metric for us in how well a new beer or an established beer is really doing. It's okay, sales are really good, but how is the quality of the beer doing when it stands up to other people and, and other brewers' beers? And so that's another metric for us in saying, yeah, it does mean a lot when we say, okay, we won 50 gold medals um, across the year and we won 200 overall or something like that. It, it, it's a meaningful thing to do because if you can't do that, and there's probably something wrong as well. And then the third one is, is really for the consumer as well. And I, I don't think it's necessarily key drivers as much as in the wine world. Uh, it's certainly a factor. And, and I think the most specific example where I see it is, and it's, this is just my personal um, experience and choices. Say you go into a lot of the tap rooms across America and see all the chalkboards and they've got 20 beers on tap. If you see a GABF gold medal or a World Beer Cup gold medal, I'm more likely to choose one of those beers off their tap list because they've done really well for, with it. And if it's a competition, I know like the World Beer Cup, you've won a gold medal, you damn know I'm going to buy that beer first because that should be their best beer. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, from the industry standpoint, I think it's it, those competitions are very helpful because we get to see, you know, these entries that are, are very geographically specific, you know, and unfortunately, just the way that the world works, you know, sometimes we don't get the opportunity to try beers from the other side of the world. And to be able to kind of have that experience and see, you know, kind of tie into what we were talking about earlier about sensibilities, you know, like, well, what is it? What is a certain country's approach to an IPA? What's a certain country's approach to a blonde ale? Uh, and to be able to see that firsthand is really important and to understand that kind of context, you know, because we can't take, you know, what we know as Americans, you know, and, and bring it all over the world and, and try to understand it from that perspective all the time. Yeah, I think, and just on that, finding the, the local approach to a beer cell, talking of Leon, James and I were in, in Paris before that, at Planet Beers, and there was a, a little bit of a beer festival on there. And, and one thing we noticed there, and, or, and I can pick up, and we kind of talked about it, is, is there a French interpre interpretation of an IPA? And, and from what I could see, I certainly um, saw one in terms of it's a lower ABV, three and a half to four percent, lower IBU. It's, kind of, it's a take on a session IPA, really, but they're using French hops, French malt, um, standard yeast. But it was a really interesting approach to it because the overtones on the beer was grassy herbal-like, but integrated well with the beer. And I remember tasting something similar to that probably eight years prior um, in, in other parts of Europe when European brewers are really starting to try and make IPAs. And what they're doing is they're just taking a West Coast-based recipe, but using European hops, and it was this grassy, bitter mess. But now they're starting to refine it into itself, and the, the, the three or four brewers that we saw um, at the Planet Beers Beer Festival had a really nice combination of um, uh, a, a firm bitterness, but it didn't linger with a nice body. And, and But what was frustrating is I didn't actually see too many of those beers come across in the competition. So sometimes you get a market-leading um, beer, kind of like Nipahs, you would see it out on the market before it started flying through GABF and World Beer Cup. Um, but it was there's something happening there in, in France in particular, but we didn't necessarily in the competition. There was certainly a wide range of um, quality beers in the competition. I don't know what you saw, James, out of that. Yeah, I, I didn't see any of those examples, uh, and I did have the uh, the privilege to judge some IPAs at the competition, um, and just the that that profile that we that we're talking about. I didn't really come across too many of those in, in the entries. You know, I did find a lot of really great porters, though. You know, there were some fantastic Pol Polish porters. You know, we 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 were able to. To, uh, to, to see what, what those entries were, you know, post-judging. And there's, there's some great Polish beers that were coming out of that competition. Shane, Shane, when you're judging, is there ever a time when you taste a beer, because you know the category, does right away do you nail it and the, and, and the brand jumps out at you? Or, or there's just way too many beers? No, the, the more beers you drink, the more you realize you don't know. And as soon as you go and assume, no, I think I know what this is, you're, you're, you're wrong. Um, and, and that nearly goes to a core approach of also what you're tasting for as well and a little bit into the competitions and other people on your table. You'll get a spectrum of people and, and it's really up to the competition to set the tone for the judges for what you're judging for. And I'll give an example. Uh, the World Brew Awards will set categories for beers and beer styles, but they're not as strict on, on some of the metrics and qualitative stuff. So, for example, if you have a really nice pale ale in front of you, but it's a little bit darker in color, it's an amazing beer. You don't need to be like, you know what, this is about three SRM, too dark, let's kick it out, wrong category. Other competitions, uh, which are more strict, and the judges around that are expecting that, will punish a beer for that. I personally don't think that's the best approach, because I've never seen a consumer send back a beer for it being too dark, but, it, it can be a part of like the, the idea of the competition is to find the best example of that style. And that's 100% okay. But that needs to be clear to the judges, the competition, and the people entering it as well. So you, you'll get a, a different philosophy of the judges on your table. And one of the most difficult ones in, in Leon was, um, I was, wasn't this time around, but I did it two years ago. And we were doing pale ales. And a particular flavor came up, which is acetaldehyde, which is green apples, right? And for me, I find it relatively egregious in a beer because I know what it is and it's, it, it shouldn't be there. However, a couple of the other judges on the table like, no, I really like this green apple aspect in my American parallel. And so it's like, well, who's right and who's wrong? Is it, are you judging really hard to the style? Which that competition isn't necessarily. Um, but that's when it goes into the negotiation in terms of like, what are you getting and what are you expecting out of a beer? Uh, and I don't know whether James picked up on it 
at all, but that that's kind of... So we're, we're opening hours at the Drinks Capital in Industry City. You got Fort Hamilton Distillery opening their gates. James's dog belongs in the choky room, but she's out with us. So, okay. Um, back to the food and pairing. Um, you talked a little bit about... Let's talk about um, Lyon. That's kind of cool. Like, these international judging events, I mean... Are you tabbed for those? Are you invited? I mean, this sounds like the inner circle of beer. I mean, James, where have you been to judge beer in the last year? And then tell us what Lyon was like. Uh, So the last year, it's really, you know, outside of the United States. You know, Shane and I, we were were fortunate enough to go to Lyon. Uh, Coincidentally enough, we were also fortunate enough to go to Seoul, South Korea. Um, and I, I am uh, planning on going to Brazil uh, later in the summer to, to do another competition. Um, but it's it's just it's a, it's a nice privilege because it, you you are right. It's not everybody gets invited, you know, to to participate. Um, and you, it's really great to see other you know other people that are in the in the room. They're coming from a different perspective. And when you're looking at a beer, you know, they might see something that's a little bit different than what you see. But the conversation is very enriching, and that's that's the the best part about these competitions, if you're asking me. I, know. I think it was really fascinating, though. But if, I mean, go ahead, Shane. You, you go ahead. No, no, no. Now, Mr. Lee. Well, no. <laughs> it was because if we're talking about, you know, beer and food and, you know, judging, like Lyon is the gastronomic capital of France. So we were very fortunate to, well, we spent a lot of time in Les Halles, which is the, uh, the, food, the, the food court. Uh, Shane really loves saying that word. Uh, yeah. There it is. Um, and so he had some of the, the, the finest food. Say it again. Leal. <laughs> yeah, I don't... I don't <laughs> food court. Yes. Um, and this, it, it, was, it was dedicated to Paul Bocuse. As we all know, he's the godfather of, you know, French gastronomy as we know it in the modern context. Um, and so there were some very fine purveyors. And we had really great food. For me, it was a missed opportunity because we didn't really have any beer opportunities to, to pair, you know, so it was all imaginative and it was all like in our head. It's like, well, what would go with this lagustine? What would go with these oysters? You know, what would go with this pate cru? Yeah, and, and Leon is all encompassing and it is one of my, it's not one of the world's largest beer competitions by and large. And actually, if you go into the room there, there's about 400 and something judges, 400, 500, and they're doing wine spirits and beer. Right, uh, and beer is only a smaller portion of that. You can think of French wine, um, but you go in, you judge in the morning, you try the beers, and then you have the, the afternoon free and to explore Lyon and just go around tasting. And they do have a nice little beer scene there as well, with some nice beer bars and a couple of breweries that are around town. But you 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 get the best of both. We do beer in the morning, and then we go and and have French cuisine. And I think, without a doubt, one of the best meals of my life we had is with us, James, and a couple other friends there. It was at Paul Bocuse. We had a degustation there, and it was it was something that I still think about today. The richness, the courses, the thought that someone's putting into the food. It's the same thing we do in beer. We're thinking of how we're going to brew it, what ingredients we're going to use, and so what better when you can put them all together and have someone who's thinking about the food, thinking about the beer, and that's where your ultimate kind of combinations. What were the classic dishes that you tried? Oh, I'm trying to think of the name. I think the, the most famous one that uh, he's known for is the chicken cooked within the stomach. So it comes out like a little balloon. They cut it open. And there's a particular type of French chicken. Uh, that Breast chicken. Yeah. And it was... B-R-E-S-T. <laughs> It was, it was delicious. There's, there's a little bit of theater to it, but don't get me wrong, it's all about the food and the experience as well because every single waiter from the wine sommelier to the guy serving you the food knew everything about what they were doing and that's when you know it's perfection upon perfection, really. Um, what, was your, what was your dish that you still remember from that dinner, James? I loved, and one of the things that I was really looking forward to going to Lyon was to have a canel, which is... Uh, it's it's very regional, you know, and yep, yeah, and it's it's uh, you're talking about essentially like a, I don't know what you call it, you call it like a dumpling of sorts, um, and uh, the big piece about it in Lyon is it's it's served with nantua sauce, uh, which is uh, a crayfish based uh, like white sauce, sauce veloute, which is the mother sauce, and we had a version at, at Bocuse, which was I, it was mind blowing. I thought it was amazing. There was shellfish that was in the canal. Uh, we were actually having a conversation on what to pair with that, you know. And I, I felt that a, a Hellas export would go excellent with that. Um, I was uh, not necessarily. Uh, I, I was uh, in, in the outside, you know. I think other people had other opinions, but they were wrong. 
<laughs> well, what's a Hellas export? I mean, there's Dortmunder export. There's Hellas that we we were just talking about three point five percent Hellas. Right. So the Dortmunder export is the Hellas export. You know, so when we think about Dob, you know, that's kind of the famous example out there in the United States. Great Lakes, you know, they they do a you know golden export as well, uh, Gornbirchen. So it's kind of the best of of both the qualities of of a Munich Hellas and a German Pilsner. Like that's kind of like a very like shorthand way of saying it. Yeah, I think I said with that one, I went down a more Garrel Oliver way, which is um, <laughs> with a um, Flanders Red um, or an Oud Bruin, which is a little bit of like, light vinegar at the touch. You've kind of got those cherry plum notes sitting on there, which really goes well with nice white meat, not overpowering. I think Duchess de Bourgogne as a style example is probably too strong, but something like Leafman's Oud Bruin probably really went well with that was the one I think we're talking about. So it sounds like Lyon in France is the place to get invited to for judging. One of the one of the great ones, absolutely. It's, it's it's a wonderful experience. We had an equally great experience in Seoul, though, you know, and I thought that was fantastic. Completely different in in many ways, uh, but equally rewarding, absolutely. And you came back. You got inspired by a porridge that you had in Korea. I did. Um, Koreans very much take breakfast very seriously, um, and it's very savory. Uh, it's a it's a very savory experience, um, and so one of the staples is is something known as juk. Um, it's 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 Pan Asian. You know, the Chinese have the Japanese have it as well. Uh, Korean juk is a little different in that it's thicker in consistency. The water to rice ratio uh, is a little bit higher or lower depending on which you know way you look at it, and they typically. They'll serve that juk with uh, some fermented sides, known as panchan. Um, and so I came back to New York, and I was just very much in the mood for that. And I, I found something, uh, like, in, in my beer stash that I thought would work really well with it. That city has its mojo back as well. I was incredibly impressed. You saw people are out drinking and eating after work Monday to, Monday to Sunday. And, and I really like that because it's kind of like the world's a little bit more back to normal and I like seeing that you're going out. And I think I got there on Sunday night and then Monday night, you kind of think it's going to be quiet in foreign city, but it was, there were people out having an amazing time and the beer is super fresh out there. And then they are like, it's food driven culture, which is amazing. So the quality is incredibly high there and people go out to eat and drink and it's amazing. Yeah, I was still on US time, like the entire, the entire competition. So you'd find me out at like 4.30 a.m you know just eating like fantastic stews you know and having like really crisp beer and it, it was it was a really fun experience absolutely what was that competition like it, the judging yeah, in particular I, I think it was a little different in that it was much more intimate uh beer was definitely front and center because it was tied in with um, a, a beer what do you call it beer festival of sorts you know like yeah. there was a, com- a big convention on at the same time as well that was going which is industry-led so it's a bit of a festival but also suppliers industry talks etc so it was very beer-centric event and it was korean only or international too it was international so don't get me wrong most of the beers entered were, were korean um, but the, the approach there was a little bit more different. So I'll give you an example. Um, Leon, you can either win a silver or a gold medal and then it could be unlimited amounts. In that competition, you only have one winner uh, per category and sometimes they don't even give a gold. You might give out a silver and a bronze. So in terms of stringency and, and approach um, to the judging process, a lot more strict. Uh, and they, they did uh, a really nice work with uh, the Brewers Association team in terms of benchmarking and also the, the International Beer Cup in Japan. So they, they want to build their reputation as a very reputable competition. And you could see that with the judges that are bringing in as well. There were some very experienced judges who'd done many other competitions, some very technical people and brewers as well, um, rather than just a wide spectrum of, of people to come who might like beer or know a little bit. They were very specific and thoughtful about who they were bringing in. And you could see that in the discussions you were having. But also, I think that the beers that were entered as well, in terms of the standard, were, were pretty high as well. There wasn't too many ones with technical faults where it's oxidation or it's a clunky recipe where it might have diastyle and butterscotch where they should have got it before it left the brewery. This, the, the baseline standard was incredibly good. Um, let's go back and talk about the, the accreditations that people would need to judge in these types of events. We know a little bit about the, the BJCP judging. You know, we have friends like you that are national judges. We've talked a little bit about the Cicerone. If you just had to say the the top four, you know, accreditations of the judges that you see, just just give us some examples. So we know that it's higher level Cicerones. Are you guys taking over at these? What what are, what other are, are people coming from UC Davis with a high degree? How, how do you single out these top judges? 
I would say if there were kind of buckets of qualifications there, um, you know, certainly in that in that quasi academic realm, you know, you do have cicerones uh, in in Europe and in, in, mar in much of uh, the other parts of the world. You know, the beer sommelier accreditation is something that is, that is highly regarded, um, and you you do see a lot of international beer sommeliers as well. Um, I think body of work as well in, in terms of experience. So you you have a lot of people that are coming who've, who've have just extensive history and knowledge, you know, in the brewing sciences, and and they're coming in, they're, they're giving their, their perspective as well. I think longevity too. There's a lot of people who've done it for a long time. They've seen what's happened over the course of years. And so they have perspective and, and context. Um, is there anything else? No, I think, it, I think the, the idea is not to think of it as a box ticking idea. If I do X, Y, Z, therefore I can go and do it. It's still a journey. You need a body of work, you need to experience you. And a lot of these, these judging competitions have a program as well. You might start as a steward, then you're an associate judge. Uh, and then you become a judge, and the classic example is probably the one I was just at last week, because it was in Australia, <laughs> Australian International Beer Awards, where they do that process. A lot of people start as a steward, they're an associate judge, so you're at the table, but your points don't count, and then you're a judge uh, going through it, and that's generally around a three-year process. So it doesn't matter your background, you kind of go through that inner workings of it. So you, you can't come off the street and say, cool, I've done my cistrone, I, I do brewing a couple times a week, I do this. It's like that's not enough, it takes time, because honestly, there's enough people with that already. So if the baseline is there, you need to be experienced and go out uh, around the world and, and see what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good to me. All right, and personally, I've, I don't like the judging process. It's a little too precise for me. And um, is, is that part of it? Can, can, can someone learn to, to like being a judge or is a certain personality that's drawn to it? I think that's a real mindset approach. And um, you, you're not the first part of, of, of uh, I mentioned Matt Kierkegaard in Oz as well. He doesn't like judging either. He thinks like the best approach to assessing a beer is having the full pint of it and experiencing and going through that process. And don't get me wrong, branding also is really part of the experience. So you really are just focusing on the liquid uh, when it comes to judging. So I think coming in the kind of people with a, a strong understanding of beer the beer styles, the ingredients, where flavors are coming from, but having an open-minded approach in terms of, okay, this is an artist, a brewer is in, a science and arts mixed, right? And so this is their interpretation, this is their approach. Just because it doesn't fit your box doesn't mean it's a good beer. And, and I find that it's interesting. Some judges really hate some styles, particularly Hefeweizens. It's a real black and white one. Some people just hate it. And I find it peculiar that if you really love the industry and love beer, that you can't set that aside and say, hey, I'm... And me, when I take all the, sometimes a lot of the competitions will ask, what beers are you comfortable judging? What beers don't you like? Do you have any allergens? I'm always all in all because I like all beers for what they are. And I like people's interpretations of them because you can often be surprised. Like, you know what? I really didn't like uh, a lash beer, but actually I've had some really good examples and they are, there are good ones out there. So you get to be surprised. For each of you, has, has, has there been a style of beer that you've had challenges with as a judge? I don't think any particular style. For me, I, I think earlier on, I, I, one of the hardest things is to not have an idea of what what you think is the paragon. I mean, the, the classic example is when you when you mentioned Saison, everybody always says Saison Dupont, Saison Dupont. Fantastic beer, but Saison's, are, it, it's a much more varied and, and wider spectrum than, than what you would expect there. And so where I am, and, and this, is, this is where I have to be very cognizant of that, is I have to judge the beer for what it is. And, it's it's not necessarily the gestalt of the beer, but it's just the characters that are being presented to you. And if it really kind of stands up to that, you know that then you do award it a certain like amount of points or certain medal. And so for me, I do find myself like on on average, I do score a little bit higher than most other judges because I'm trying to I'm trying to. I'm trying to like respect the brewer, but I'm also kind of giving that brewer credence and saying like, well, there's an intention to to this product, and and that's why I think I'm really scoring higher than some other ones might be. Um, just on that, I think, and, and it's a real nuanced comment, and it'd be interesting your experience, James, on, on judging and point scoring. One of, some of the systems in some of the competitions is effectively similar to wine, which is a 100-point scoring system. And, and often it's the same kind of competition that is really open on styles, right? So it's like, is this a good beer? You're going to give a point. Similar to wine, like they just loosely categorize it. It's kind of about knowing what it is in and of itself. 
And one of the hardest categories to give higher points to is American lagers and American light lagers. It's a very thin light beer, and I know it incredibly well through work, uh, and a lot of the brewers that are around judging as well from some of the large brewers, but it's, it's a style that you can have the cleanest, and, and Bud Light is a good example. It's an incredibly clean beer, right? And the yeast we use is clean, and the process we use it, and that is an, an amazing example, and a lot of people like drinking that beer, it's really hard to do well at a competition when you've got other beers around there and they might have a little bit more, a little bit there, when that is a nice beer and a lot of people like it. So why wouldn't it get 100 points? Because that's exactly how we want it. It's been like that for the last 30 years. It's, but it's hard, and same as Bud, and same as Coors, and same as Heineken. These international lagers do find a very difficult time to get gold medals in those 100-point systems. If you're judging purely to category, you know, one, two, three system, it can be a little bit more fairer because then they're like, no, this is a great clean example of the style. We're gonna give it a goal. There's nothing wrong with it. It's ticking all the boxes. It's an amazing beer. But when you have a wide spectrum and often you'll have a flight where you have the light lager, you have an American lager, you have an international lager, you might have a Hellas sitting there just for grouping purposes. The Hellas always does better, right? Because it's a little bit more more there. But the frustrating thing, that doesn't mean the other beer is worse. It's just when it sits on the flight in front of you, uh, that these styles in particular are really hard to get a good medal at. You'll see it in the World Beer Cup because it's a one, two, three system, GABF as well, KIB, the Korean one, we saw it. But in the more open ones, we have multiple medal categories. Often you'll only ever see a silver and a bronze, which is an interesting kind of dichotomy. And that's purely to the judges. Wow, this has been very eye-opening and it, it makes you think about when, when I see that a brewery got an award at a certain competition, to, to dig a little deeper and, and kind of see what, what that was for. I know in New York State there was just Tap New York and, the, you know, our friends at Bridge and Tunnel Brewing won the, the best best beer or best brewery in New York. I think it might have been the best beer, right? But, but that's great. And I, th I think for me the more local and regional competitions sometimes uh, are most helpful, especially for our, our friends in the local industry. Um, before we go, let's you brought a couple of beers in. Um, Shane, let's talk about those quickly. I did, I did. I bought Just since we're opening here, so basically around this, Fort Hamilton's <laughs> open. James is about to open. Um, I think he's got some customers going over there now, over to the Gun Hill Public, which you've really done a nice job with, James. You've even got plants. Number one, this time of year, you can come up to the second floor balcony. There's an outside bar you can set outside. It's beautiful here, Industry City. Building six, the drinks capital of Brooklyn. Good, and I think before we close out, we have in our hands now... Um, a wild ale uh, by La Serene, which is effectively a very funky saison with a nice sour tart note to the finish there. It's open to the elements. Um, it's an amazing brew. I, I picked the bottle up. It's one of my favorite ones to go up. It's just outside of Melbourne City uh, called Alfington. Um, Costa there is a winemaker. So it's an Australian beer. It is. It is. I brought it all the way back. Um, fortunately, we don't have a section out there in, in Australia and more as part of our business, but this is, uh, growing up in Oz, this has always been one of my favorite beers and breweries to have out there. It just does an amazing beer. It's very thoughtful uh, brewer, and, and it's a particular styles that I like in terms of saisons and wild ferments there. And then the other beer I brought along was a Bourbon County Stout 2019 Knob Creek one, which is just as we were talking about all those roasted uh, notes before and a bit of bourbon infused. I think we'll enjoy that one after this one as well. And then the last one again with your expertise, this La Seren from outside of Melbourne in, in Australia, there's a sourness. D describe to me what the style is and what the funk is in in your language. So... Uh, Not Australian. The, <laughs> I think wild ale is a really good way to categorize it. And the tricky thing is that it probably means not much to consumers at large, but people within the industry or within the craft beer scene or the beer scene probably know what they mean by that. And by that, I'm getting quite notes of a little bit of barnyard funk, some white pepper, so I'm getting these phenols sitting on top there. But you can... you Below that is a little bit of a, a white apple cider note because I was like, okay, is this going to be sour? I suspect it might be. Then you have it on the palate, and it's a really nice, bright tartness that sits there as well. Um, I think good carbonation that lifts it up off the palate, but it is a nice white pepper, a little bit of barnyard funk with this really nice, uplifting tart uh, finish on it. And what I would like to finish on is, James, what would you pair this with? Well, where, where I am with this, because, you know, when you talk about this bright tartness, I agree with you with the white pepper. I think that, that bright tartness to me comes across a little bit like uh, 
a little bit like starfruit, a little bit like kumquat, you know? And so I, for whatever reason, I want to go to like a key lime pie with something like this. And I think it'd be really nice. You get a little bit like that earthy notes, you know, with the pepper, kind of grounds that key lime pie, gives it a little bit of foundation. And I think it'd be a wonderful experience, especially in this weather. I, I love that, that I, can, I can see that and taste it. But what about something savory that I'm eating in my everyday life? Because I would drink this as a, as a, you know, a couple times a week. I like wild ale. Uh, you know, I might do something a little bit, little bit interesting with this. I, so when I get something that, that's got like that sourness, quote unquote, you know, a little bit of that acidity, I kind of like to use that as an, again, you know, going back to my philosophy in, in pairing, I kind of like to use that like to my advantage. And so when I think about like a lot of, um, like marinades, um, or specifically like some, some dipping sauces. And so when I'm thinking about something like this, I might consider like a, like a hybrid, and this is just me kind of like being creative right now, something like a, uh, you know, we, we think about the xiaolongbao, which is, you know, a soup dumpling, you know, but doing something that's a little bit more like vegetarian based, you know, a little bit of, uh, um, what am I talking about? Like squat, butternut squash, maybe, uh, zucchini. Um, but the real vegetable flavors coming through. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's going to be you know, much much more of you know like again like that 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 kind of that that, that, that vegetable kind of. I, I cooked something last week where I just really charred some onions, but the onions were fresh from a farm, and the, the onion flavor came through, and roasted some beets also from a farm, and the, the key notes were the beets and the onions. Mm -hmm. And I, I see what you're saying. You know, most people mask that. Yeah, it's it's got a very bright through line, and that's why the, the beer I think would go really well with that. And so. You know, with those dipping sauces, usually get a little bit of city to just kind of cut the palate, and I think this would be a perfect uh, situation to pair with it. Wow. Well, Shane and James, it's so great having you here with me. We're going to take this bottle of uh, Goose Island uh, Bourbon County Stout, fancy Knob Creek, uh, and all that stuff. We're going to probably have that for its Memorial Day, so we're going to have some fun here at the Drinks Capital of Brooklyn, Industry City, Building 6, Gun Hill Public, and... Fort Hamilton Distillery. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm big thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen, who cleans this up for us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio is supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.